If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 2. I want to settle a debate real quick before we get into the text this morning. Some of you have asked me why when I pray for the Lord to wash our worship in His blood, why I say wash and not wash. Listen, I just want everybody in this room to understand I don't expect for everybody to have grown up in the grand culture of the state of Missouri. Some of, some of us were afforded that privilege. And I have tried to say wash the better part of my adult life, but I'm married to a beautiful young lady that can't say wash to save her life. She says wash. My gr- grandmother used to say wash the dishes in the zinc. We say sink, so we're making progress. End of discussion. <laughs> 1 John chapter 2, we're continuing in this theme of John's writing. If you're joining us for the first time, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. That is our gift to you. Join us in this text. And what we've learned thus far is that we live in a fallen, dark, evil world. And that the only real joy that man can have in this life, there are many pleasures, but the only real lasting and abiding joy that we can have is in knowing God and having fellowship with Him in fleeing all the things of this world and holding fast to the body of Christ. And and what we learned last week in these verses from verse 18 all the way through the end of chapter 2 is that if our fellowship is the, uh, with God is the rock and the anchor of our joy, then it only stands to reason that if Satan is cunning and evil, and he is, that what he will seek to do is to undermine the truth in the church of God that we might have waffling joy, that we might uh, struggle in our fellowship with God because we don't understand who He actually is in His gospel and we're not rooted in His work and in His work alone. This text can be, I argued last week, divided into three uh, constituent components. The reality of the nature of the spiritual conflict, that is that Satan wants to interject lies about the faith once for all delivered to the saints into uh, the church and that there is a means by which we realize this danger and that's what we're going to talk about today, the doctrine of the anointing or of unction, some would call it, in verses 20 and 21 and then verse 27. And then thirdly, ways to avoid the dangers that arise in the falsehoods that are Proclaimed And beloved, we live in a time where in John's day, many antichrists have gone out into the world, many who teach contrary to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I stand here this morning 2,000 years off of that statement, and there has not been a lessening of those types of teachers. There's been a proliferation. And there's been a proliferation even in the past 100 years. We we see works-driven religion throughout church history. We see individuals who want to proclaim, if you do X, Y, and Z, if you follow this man-made system, you will receive salvation. That's contrary to the gospel of God. We see fundamentalism rising up in a particular bent of cultural fundamentalism that if you dress a certain way and do a certain list of things and don't do a list of other things and if you read your Bible enough in your own effort, then eventually you'll come to salvation. Well, There's a right way to argue for a fundamentalism, but there is a fundamentalism that I think just falls under the category of a works-driven religion. And that's contrary to the gospel of God. Then there's the liberal gospel. The gospel says that Jesus has done everything to secure the redemption of His church. Amen? The liberal, the, the real gospel says Jesus has won the victory, period. The liberal gospel says you need to get to work. You need to be Jesus. If you are Jesus, then the whole world will come to salvation. Here's the problem with liberal theology. If we are the ones who are supposed to be Jesus, and I believe that's a pretty tall order. All I need is one liberal theologian to actually measure up to that mark. All I need is one liberal theologian that I can hand a basket of bread and a a few fish to, and they can feed 5,000. When that happens then liberal theology takes off. But the problem is, liberal theology denies the sufficiency of the work of Christ by suggesting that it is by our social efforts, by our constructs in society, that we will bring about redemption. Friends, salvation is of the Lord, period. 
There's also the prosperity gospels in our day that turn out to be nothing more than materialism wrapped in a version of the gospel. And then there's civic religion. And don't mishear me. I think as Christians we can be involved in politics. But there's a type of civic religion that really puffs up the political process and our own nation in a way that is absolutely contrary to the gospel of God. Salvation doesn't come because of where we were born. Salvation comes from the Spirit of God. You see, there's always this real danger of being taken into error from uh, departing the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it doesn't take a whole lot to depart the faith because it's very clear as to what the faith is in Scripture and where we get our faith. So the pressing need that we learned last week in all of this and the reality that the church is pressed in hard by false teaching is that in this conflict, the pressing need is for theological and doctrinal clarity. When people are departing, when they are going out from among us, as this text speaks, what really is the necessity is not that we delude down the truth that we teach so that a group of people will come together. The clear necessity of what what John is illustrating by example is that we drive deeper into theological and doctrinal certainty that the real church of God might come together and exist in unity. That we might actually know Christ with great clarity and proclaim Him with great boldness. Do you know why there's not boldness in our day? Because there's not clarity about who Jesus really is. You can't have boldness without doctrinal and theological clarity and conviction. Somebody's going to say, well, this is then going to divide people. I made that argument last week. I had a dear brother come up immediately after the service and encourage me in a way that he often does, and tell me, listen, the gospel does divide, but don't forget that the gospel also brings the church together. And that is the truth. Uh, What John tells us then, in light of that statement, that the gospel does divide, but the real gospel also brings the real church of the living God into fellowship and unity. It, It brings us together. What John then goes on to say in verses 20 and 21 and 27 is that God Himself has made a provision that when we come together around this around this gospel, around Christ, He has made provision in holding that church together. He has made the provision not only in bringing us together in association with one another in the faith, but He also has promised to bind us together through this form that we will speak of today, the doctrine of the anointing. So with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand as we begin reading in verse 18 of chapter 2. John writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you that those who are trying to deceive you, about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Would you pray with me? 
Father God, we come before you acknowledging the reality of the authorship of faith by the Spirit. We ask that you would inscribe these words onto our hearts, that we might understand them rightly, that we would not contend merely for a doctrine in some man-centered way, but that we would contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that we would listen to the word and that we would heed the work of the Spirit in our lives, that we would resign ourselves to the meaning of your word and that we would live lives with joy having fellowship with you in Jesus name amen you may be seated so the question then we come to this text this morning we ask what is it that holds the church together we learned last week that there are those who claim to be of us and that us is really indicative of all of those who call on the Lord for salvation. The, the us is all of the elect of God. All of those who Christ paid for their sin. And we learn that many will depart from us because ultimately they were never of us. And so then the question comes, well, what is the difference between us and them? Well... Some would maybe argue arrogantly our morality. We're better people than they are. Or maybe our intellectual reasoning. We're more erudite in our thinking. Maybe it's our upbringing, our good deeds. John would say absolutely not to every one of those categories. He makes the argument here that it is through the work of Christ instructed in, 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 uh, in the heart of a believer by the Holy Spirit that we have received the anointing or some in church history call this the unction, verse 20 and 21. And this text has been so contorted and misused in so many circles But I hope that we can shine gospel clarity on these uh, words this morning. He, He writes, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. What makes the difference between a believer, one who is part of us and those who go out from among us, is not anything in our, of ourselves, our own ability, our own intellect, our own morality. The thing that makes the difference is the Spirit of Almighty God in us. The anointing that we have. That is what makes the particular difference. So then you're going to ask this question, and I'm glad you are. What is the unction? What is the anointing? Well, it is the influence of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. In the Old Testament, we see this in a particular way when a person was going to be separated out for an office or a position or a work, that individual would have the Spirit of God be anointed, be set apart, and the Spirit of God would resign upon them. 1 Samuel chapter 16 records the anointing of King David. Verses 12 through 13. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. There's a picture in the Old Testament, and I don't want to get too deep into the symbolism here, but there's a picture in the Old Testament of oil being the, the, the thing that would ultimately be put in a vessel so that a lamp could be lit. And so the oil being a symbol for anointing is a picture of the filling of the Spirit of God where we derive our spiritual life from. God's anointing, uh, his, his dwelling in the life of a believer. In the New Testament, we find in 1 Peter chapter 2 these words. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Every Christian has been anointed. We have been set apart as a particular people. Revelation chapter 1 records this. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, all who are Christ have been anointed. All who are in Christ at this very moment have been anointed. He is 
ultimately has sent his spirit upon his people. Jesus has sent, Jesus the Holy One has sent his spirit to dwell with us, to be our helper and our comforter. And the Bible also speaks of an anointing of Christ in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Listen to these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now the Gnostics come to this particular text and they say, See, the material things of life, the body, is spiritually depraved and bad. But but the, the... the, the immaterial part, the spiritual part, that is good. And what we see in this text, their argument would have been, what we see in Isaiah is an indication that Jesus the man was born into the world and at a particular time there was anointing of him with the Spirit, but before the crucifixion that, anoint, that anointing of the Spirit departed. The, the Spirit departed Jesus and the, only the body of Christ was put to death. That's the Gnostic heresy that John is writing against here. That's nonsense. Ultimately, that kind of thinking... Can I give this to you? That type of thinking undermines the the veracity of who Christ is. It undermines His eternality. It undermines His... um, it, It undermines who Christ is in His fullness. And so... Uh, sorry, find my place. And so Jesus comes here saying that God in this particular time had set him apart for the work of his ministry. Jesus is now of age and coming into the fullness of his ministry set apart for that particular purpose. He is going to preach to those who are oppressed liberty. What are those who are oppressed oppressed by? Well, I believe it is by untruth in their own sin. And what Jesus is doing is speaking truth into a lost and dying world. That those who hear His voice would come to Him and have eternal life. So Jesus had an anointing in a sense. And yet, He was fully God and fully man from the foundation of the world. So we see in verse 20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And there's an entire theological question of who the Holy One is. And some will want to say that this is only the Holy Spirit. Now there's a theological argument there, but I don't believe that that's true. I believe that in this context, we're continuing to drive at the second member of the Trinity and who Jesus is. And those who deny Jesus, and those who deny Jesus' relationship to the Father, ultimately have misunderstood the Gospel. And I believe going hand in hand, the Holy One here, the Hagios is Jesus Himself. Jesus is the one who sent His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now there's two ways of looking at this. The the sending of the Spirit into our lives. One is the anointing of the Spirit by the Holy One in sending us spiritual giftings and the presence of the Spirit to be a helper. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see that when Jesus ascended, He gave gifts to men. That Jesus to this day gives individual giftings in the body of the church for the flourishing of the church. Now there's an entire argument to be had about what those gifts are and how they operate in the church, not the point of the text today. The point is that Jesus ascended and then He sent the Spirit to give gifts to men. The Spirit did not come until Christ had ascended. It is Jesus who is our victor who has sent His Spirit upon the church to dwell in us as we come to Him in repentant faith. He comes, uh, the Spirit comes from the Father through the work of the Son into our hearts and lives that we might glorify God. The Son. So that is the first way. The anointing of the Spirit in the sense that Jesus sends the Spirit in our lives to illuminate truth, to bring us to Himself, and that we might glorify Him and as a source of our comfort. But there's another way of seeing this. 
We constantly find, and we've talked about, our union with Christ and our being, as the Bible says, in Christ, that we are partakers of all of the inheritance of Christ. And so something we have to understand about who Christ is is that He was full of the Holy Spirit. If you look back to verse 1 of Luke chapter 4, you find these words, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't believe in a Gnostic view of the Godhead. We believe in the Trinity. Individual members, yet one person. And so Jesus, we, we don't... We don't believe in a partialism where we part out, well, Jesus is here and the Spirit is here and God is here. They are the triune Godhead. And so because Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and we are in Him, this levels the question, can you be a Christian and not be indwelled by the Spirit of God? And the answer is no, because if you are in Christ, you have access to the fullness of the Godhead through Christ. To be in Christ means you have the Holy Spirit to the fullest measure. God does not appropriate thin, thin levels of the Spirit to His people. Now, I'm not speaking about giftings there. But in the salvific sense, any theology that undermines the full access of every believer to the Spirit of God is an erroneous view. It is not true. No one can be a Christian without having been anointed by the Spirit of God. So we are all anointed by the Spirit through the work of the Son at the will of the Father. And then this question comes, so what is the result of this unction? What is the result of this anointing? There are people who are in Christ, and there are people who are part of us in the physical sense, but ultimately they go out from among us, and then there are those who remain true and stay. And so what is the ultimate outworking of this anointing in the body of, uh, of believers? Uh, what is the result of having been anointed? Well, well, the answer to that is found very simply at the end of verse 20. And you all have knowledge. Now, there is a debate here whether or not that is translated correctly. Is John writing in the original language, you all have knowledge, or is he writing, you have all knowledge? And I'm not going to end that debate because both translations are just fine. Quite frankly, they end in the same place. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and it turns out at the end they both wound up in the same place anyway. Uh, either translation is absolutely fine. We are given all Knowledge. We have been given understanding. Look in verse 27. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. And you don't have any need of teaching. Uh, that anyone should teach you. Why? Because you have all knowledge. Or you all have knowledge. Whichever way you want to see it. But what does this mean? There are those who try to capitalize on this verse and, and teach a type of subjective mysticism that is connected with the Spirit. And I'm not picking necessarily on anyone in our modern day, although there are many examples. I think we also find this in people like the Quakers throughout church history. Individuals, the Quakers were a group of people who said what you really need to do as a Christian is just look down deep inside you and you will find this marvelous inner light. And you just need, Dallas, you just need to follow your inner light. The problem is that Dallas and I have both been looking for the inner light forever and we just don't find it. All we find is a pile of depravity. Amen? It needs washed. Amen. We got a convert. And Quakers would, would, would teach this type of subjective uh, mysticism that, that we look inward to find God. That we look to the depths of our own being and we can find the joy of being united in some sense to the truth. That, that we need to, and I believe that this is a precursor to the type of thinking where, hey, live your own truth. Because how can I argue your inner light? How can I argue all the things that you're saying subjectively? I want to share a subjective story now that I've condemned sub subjectivity. When I was in college, I had a friend named Phil. Phil worked for me, and he was, he was an absolute... He loved to read. Um, and Phil comes into my office one day, and, and friends, I believe that we are so immersed 
in a type of cultural Christianity that without thinking about it, we pick up different components of religion and we put it all together throughout our lives. And a lot of times what we wind up with is a view of the Christian faith that is completely contrary to the Word of God. Something that is other than the Word of God. And I remember distinctly a day when I was sitting in my office and I had been talking about the Holy Spirit and His work in my life in a very subjective way. And Phil just looked at me and Phil said... Jay, I know that you're in Christ and I believe that we're brothers, but I just think you and I have radically different views about who the Holy Spirit is. And I thought, what a jerk. I mean, how how can this man have the audacity to come against my subjective feelings? And all I'm doing is regurgitating what I've heard for years anyway, and all of the people I were raised around could never have been wrong. And he looked at me and he said, Jay, it's this simple. I believe that the Holy Spirit is and does what the Bible says that He is and that He does. And all of the frustration in my heart pounded against that statement. And eventually I went, well, He has to be right. That has to be true. There is no way that the subjective experience that I have can be the authority over the Word of God in who the Spirit is and what He does. And more conversations with Phil would lead me to see that the working of the Spirit was not just for my emotional joy, but for my conformity to the image of Christ. That the Spirit of God, in fact, at points in my life, will bring me to a state of brokenness. Uh, to a state where I see my own wretched depravity and I run to Jesus in repentant faith and ask for His forgiveness. Friends, can I tell you this morning as your pastor that one of the things as we talk about learning in this text that I think is most important in our learning, you know what it is? It's our unlearning. May God bless the unlearning at LifePoint Baptist Church. What do I mean by that? I mean that we would come in here week in and week out and we would take everything we think we know and we would hold it loosely, not so Jay can put his view hard over ours, but so that the Spirit of God can help us to see with greater clarity who the Spirit, the Son, and the Father actually are and that we would see through all the religious garbage of our day to the triune God who has really redeemed us. God bless our unlearning. May we be a people who are not so stubborn to hang on to what we merely think. You see, that again, there's almost this intrinsic error in the church where we fixate on the Spirit in a subjective, feeling-driven way. But here is one of the, the first things we need to understand about the Spirit of God that I think in my own young Christian walk I repeatedly got wrong. And it's this. The Spirit of the living God is a person, not a force. The Spirit of God is not some, some individual over at the side that God sends upon some, the whole world indiscriminately to try to leverage some into the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit of God is not one going, I hope, I, I really, I'm trying my darndest to get this person into the kingdom of God. No, the Spirit of the living God is more like... <clears throat> Now, the, the, the Spirit of God is a person. I don't want to compare Him. The Spirit of God is a person. And when He shows up with all of His omnipotence, all of His power, He can do... Is there anything God can't do? Is the Holy Spirit a person? So is there anyone that God can't save if He so chooses? No. Now, if the Spirit is a force and is merely trying to beckon and pull... And, and, then maybe that force can be overcome. But the Spirit of the living God is a person and He is at work doing exactly what He came to do. God the Father did not make a mistake in setting out His decrees before the foundation of the world. God the Son did not fail in His meritorious redemption of our souls. And God the Spirit does not fail at bringing every one of the lost sheep home. Does not. We need to unlearn what we think is so clear in the text and all of these mystical ideas and resign ourselves to the reality that the Spirit of the living God is a person, not an impersonal force. Now this is where some of the common errors, and I just want to brush over these quickly 
I hope this serves for your unlearning. Some of the errors of understanding the Holy Spirit in our age. One, he's a force, not a, he's a person, not a force. Two, people will come in with this subjective type of view of the Spirit that the Spirit has revealed this to me. And they claim direct revelation. They, they claim to have received from the Lord truth the same way that the apostles received truth and the prophets received truth. But the, the difficulty in that is individuals that come claiming to have inspiration, claiming to have a, a, a word from the Lord that is revelatory of final objective truth is that those individuals can't be, there's no way to verify that. There's only two options. Either you disbelieve them or you believe what they're saying and then functionally, as they have said, this word comes from God, you have to submit to it. And their subjective opinion becomes the authority. Secondly, people will come and judge, again, everything in, by the subjective. Well, this is how I feel. How I feel is ultimately the most important thing. I've had this experience and you can't speak against my experience. And friends, that's true. There is nothing I have to say to your subjective experience. But there are 66 books that have authority over your experience. Fourth, and I want to be careful that we don't paint this onto entire groups of people in an unhelpful way. But if we ultimately come to people who think that they have direct revelation from God and they judge everything in their life by that subjective experience, they will wind up in some form or fashion with a low view of the Word of God. Because what is, what is subjective for them will be up here and the Bible will be down here. And beloved, I believe with every fiber of my being the Bible should be here and all of our subjective experience should be here. And not all will make this error. Not all will make all of these errors. But finally, what often happens is this group of people claim divine revelation and they judge everything by the subjective. And they end up with a low view of the Word of God and then they go for the jugular and they claim infallibility. They claim that what... They believe what they subjectively see is the truth, period. The Quakers would have argued that in one form or fashion. Now, not all of the Quakers would have argued that, but some of them would have fallen into the air of saying, I have looked so hard at my inner light, and my inner light says X, Y, and Z. And so it's infallible. You must live by it. The better question is, what does this passage teach about knowledge and about teaching? And John is not teaching here about subjective guidance. John is talking about doctrine. He's talking about knowledge. He's talking about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Again, look at verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. There is, capital T, objective truth. For every believer. And we must aim at that truth. So what John is talking about here is not subjective guidance in the sense of our lives. And beloved, in many ways, I believe that the Lord does subjectively guide us into different nuances of our lives. But there's an objective overriding truth that I believe John is speaking of here in this anointing, in this unction. He doesn't teach that every Christian receives direct revelation. He is, he is teaching in the context, remember, look at verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to, to you, also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. John and all of the apostles spent the rest of their lives pinning letters inspired by the Word of God and going about teaching these things to the church of God so that they might have a foundation of faith. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. What John is not teaching here is that we come into the body with our own subjective opinion. In our day, we come under the authority of the Word of God that has been completed, that is sufficient. Now, the Quakers would disagree with that. They would see you, say you need to look to your inner light. There are other Protestant movements that would disagree with that in subtle forms. 
The Roman Catholic Church today would disagree with that because their Pope can speak ex cathedra or from the chair. He can say whatever he wants to say and that, that is big T truth. Now there's a whole argument there too. Some Roman Catholics say, well, ex cathedra is only in certain instances. Well, that's the same kind of thing that people do with the Bible where they build an entire doctrine and then they say, but I just want this part and this part and this part. So... Errors abound, right? Errors abound inside of errors. Um, it never ends. But here, we see that John is not saying, look, Sarah needs to have a word for us today. Jay brought it bound in leather. That's all we need. Right? The Word of God is sufficient in our gathering. And John is not saying that we receive individual, objective revelation directly from God. He also does not teach that people know everything. Christians are not a bunch of know-it-alls, contrary to how some behave. Christians are not a group of people who know everything about everything. Uh, Otherwise, we would all have straight A's, and we know inside the body of Christ, Christian fathers have struggled for generations with getting their sons and their daughters to do their homework so that they can learn. He's not teaching that you don't need a teacher in everything on the face of the planet. That's not what he's teaching. He's also not teaching that we know everything spiritually. That when we come to Christ, we have all of the spiritual world understood from day one. That is not at all what John is saying. Because we know, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter writes, But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we come to an individual um, relationship with the Lord and that we have to then grow on to be sanctified in our understanding of the truth, in our growth, in our relationship with the Lord, and that we do grow in knowledge. So we don't have all knowledge in the sense of every aspect of the spiritual world, and we certainly don't have all of the knowledge of the entire natural world. There has to be learning. So let's think about this in the positive. What is this imparting? What is this saying? If the thing that binds the church together is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and every Christian has that anointing, and that anointing leads to knowledge, what is that knowledge? In such a way that we don't need teaching. Well, Paul speaks of what this knowledge is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe. He puts it just in a different way. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given to us. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Imparting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually Discern. Now there is one sense in which we know, in fact we learned this if you were here on Wednesday night, from verse 12 of Psalm 119, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. That the only teacher we ultimately have that bears fruit in our lives is the Spirit of God progressively revealing His will through His Word to the church. That's a reality that, G, that the Spirit is teaching us. But I don't believe that's the way that... John is speaking of the anointing with knowledge here. The way in which um, John writes in particular is that the unction leading to knowledge ends in the unity of the church in us understanding who Jesus is. That this knowledge you have, you all have knowledge or you have all knowledge, ultimately ends on this. The knowledge that we have is who we are as fallen depraved sinners who Jesus is, that we are separated from God, and that we need Christ to be our intermediary, that we need an atonement on our behalf, a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin, and we put our finished faith on Christ, and that knowledge is sufficient for our coming to saving faith. The knowledge is the knowledge of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Understanding who we are, who God is, and leaning into Christ in all of His sufficiency. This is a knowledge that no academic staff can give. No professor, no pastor, no prophet, no faculty can impart this knowledge to anyone. 
What, what John is saying is, look, many people will take you into many different odd theologies and they will th- drive you in the direction away from Christ. Be careful about that. But those who go out from among us are not of us because the us have been anointed with the Spirit of God. You have been taught about who Jesus is, who you are, and that your justification is not by anything you have done. It is by the work of Christ alone. This is, in fact, I think, a pastoral encouragement. He's saying, look, if they go out, and some of them have, and and, and we've talked about the reality that these aren't a distant people. These are friends and family members and people that they were in fellowship with, and they've gone out. and, And John is saying, look, they went out because the Spirit never anointed them. The Spirit never revealed to them the reality of who Jesus is, their need for Christ, and never imprinted upon their heart the work of grace and repentance. And that is why they went out from among us. Be heartened. That tells you this. The us that stay are those who the Spirit of God really has anointed. He's giving the church a footing to set still and not be anxious and know that the work of God endures. Isn't that an encouragement to you today? That, that the entire United States... we Listen, for my entire 36 years of life, Barna Research has been the prophet of doom and gloom. Now they're just reporting the, the reality of our nation, but they're telling us that the churches are emptying out. What if every church in America emptied out and all we had left was the faith once for all delivered to the saints? What if we don't have these chairs? What if we don't have these buildings? What if we are despised and rejected by all of our neighbors? What if the Supreme Court passes some case law that says to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely against every modern moral, moral that we have Amen anyhow, we have been anointed by the the work of the Spirit through Christ in accordance with the will of the Father. His church, that is enough. His church will endure forever. No philosopher could build the church. No king could raise the church up. Ultimately, no priest could be the right intermediary but Christ alone. Only Christ can can build His church. If you want to talk about instruction and what this really means, because some people take this out of context. Well, I don't need any. Jay, all of those books in your library, they're for nothing because I don't need the teaching of men. That kind of attitude is really moronic. And I mean that in all kindness. Because that's not what this passage is teaching. The passage is teaching teaching us that there is no ultimate salvation apart from the work of the Spirit. That Jay can't bring people to Jesus. Only the Spirit can bring people to Jesus. That's what is being said. And then what happens after that is, is individuals come to the realization of how wonderful and beautiful Jesus is. And libraries are not built so that we look smart. Libraries are built because we realize other people that lived 200 years ago valued Jesus and thought he was beautiful. And so we want to hear their take on Jesus too. Because that helps us in clarity of all of who Christ is. As long as every word written by man is, is, is under the authority of the objective word of God. But here's what I want you to see. Let me just wrap this up with an illustration of of an individual who had been taught, who had been given all of the knowledge that was necessary for salvation. You'll remember this individual. Um, He's the Apostle Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, we hear of his learning, of his anointing with all the knowledge in such a way that he didn't need a teacher. He didn't need Gamaliel. He didn't need all of the scribes. He didn't need the Pharisees of his day. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And here are all the learned ones. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, there's the content of the knowledge in what Peter says. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we find out who the real instructor is, don't we? Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. John says, you have no teacher. It was the Father that revealed this to you. And if He has revealed this to you, if He has revealed to you that Jesus is the Son of the living God, blessed are you, Barjona. Blessed are you, Life Point Baptist Church, in the year 2021, because the, the, the Spirit of the living God has anointed you with the knowledge Knowledge unto salvation. Isn't that, doesn't that give you joy? I may not know much, but I know who Jesus is. You know, before I went into theological learning and found out that, my word, we don't know a whole lot more than what we actually do know in the body of Christ, I had a godly, wonderful great-grandmother Grew up during the Depression. Left school at the 8th grade to take care of her younger 14 brothers and sisters. Read her Bible voraciously all throughout her life. She was taught by the Spirit of the living God. She didn't need an academic degree. She knew who the Son of the living God was. So we have the content. You are the son of the living God. We have the instructor for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven and we have the outcome. I will build my church, which is exactly what John is telling us here. The anointing of the spirit of God in our understanding of who Christ is will bind us together. And Jesus, in fact, will, through his gospel, bring us together. And this is why John says you have all knowledge or you have all the knowledge, however you want to argue it. We don't know that. You have it. But those who went out from you didn't have that knowledge. Verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, as is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, Abide in Him. He is the Son of the living God. Rest in Christ and in Him alone. Now, here is the reality throughout church history. There will be men who will stand in pulpits and they will not teach the Word of God. They will proclaim their own viewpoints. They will come up with systems that are better than what Christ Himself left the church through the Word that He inspired in the Spirit. And they will come up with ways of of viewing conversion. And you know what happens when men come up with alternative means of conversion in the church? Men make converts and the church doesn't grow at all. When we come to a Jesus through a man-centered methodology and not because the Spirit of the living God, the, the Father has revealed this to us, all we wind up with is churches full of people who don't actually know Christ. And then somebody's going to have the audacity to stand before that group of people and say, thus saith the Lord. He knows everyone that belongs to him. All of his sheep hear his voice. Not one will be lost on the final day. And you know what happens in those churches? Those who are not of us depart from among us. This has happened in every age of the church. It happened in Luther's day. As he was looking around and Luther wanted to honor God. He wanted to know God. And he, he climbed the stairs at the Vatican and he prayed all of the prayers. And he, he would throw himself on the floor in what in German is called the Anfekton. Or the, 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 these fits of just being racked with guilt over his sin. He, he was a lawyer and he understood all of what it meant to be a sinner. And he knew that there was no justification in and of himself. 
And then he came to this verse in Romans that says, the just will live by faith, that it is only by our faith in Christ that we can be set free from the penalty and the power of sin. And you know what Luther did in his day? He didn't stand up and go, well, you know, theological conviction and clarity doesn't matter. He stood up and woke an entire generation of the church uh, to the reality again of this doctrine of justification by faith alone. That it is only through Christ and His work that we ever have hope for salvation. That it is only through the working of the Spirit of Almighty God that anyone ever comes to saving faith. And that the Spirit of God is not a force, but is a person bringing souls to salvation. That's what Luther did. Luther went out from amongst a group of people that were never of us. The Roman Catholic Church. And he proclaimed the good news of the gospel of grace with absolute clarity. So what, is, what, what difference, some people ask, is it if there are some who believe that we ultimately come to saving faith in our own ability and then there are some who believe that it is the Spirit's doing by the will of God and the decrees of God. I promise you this is the difference. Only the view that says God is the one who teaches His children who His Son is will ultimately wind up with the church unified around the genuine gospel. Every other mechanism for bringing a church into existence will utterly fall on the day of judgment. The unction... The anointing of the Spirit does not lead us, beloved, to a subjective perspective and being dominated by the thoughts of men. The unction, the anointing of the Spirit of God brings us into worship of the one true living God and ultimately guides us into obedience in faith and practice. Has the Spirit of God revealed to you who Jesus really is? Is He the Redeemer of your soul? Is He the one who when you hear His voice, everything in you says, that is God Almighty. If it is, you have all of the reason in the world to rejoice. Because that Jesus, through His Spirit, and to this very day, has been bringing His church together. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today acknowledging the reality of our own pride and arrogance. Father, we need far more unlearning than we need learning. We need to humble ourselves under the authority of your word. We need to be humbled not under the, the doctrines of men in that sense, but under the doctrines that clearly flow from your word. We need to look to the lives of men who have laid everything out for the glory of the gospel and, and hear what they have to say. But more than anything, Father, this morning we need you to continue to speak into our lives that thing that you first anointed us with. And that is that Jesus is the Son of the living God. If there's one here that doesn't know you, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do and anoint them with your Spirit unto salvation. Father, I pray that we would be a church resigned to what you are doing in our age. That we would pray fervently for revival in our community and around the globe, in our nation. Knowing that you are powerful and mighty to save. Father, might we worship you in spirit and in truth. Knowing that we are secure in your arms. Not because we've come to you, but because you've come to us and anointed us with the knowledge of salvation.